Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Adrian Hayter. Adrian is a GP and he's been a GP for over 26 years. He's also a GP partner. He is the National Clinical Director for Older People and Integrated Person-Centered Care. And he's also a non-executive director at NHS Trust. Now for this podcast interview, I feel like if you are super experienced, you could listen to this podcast multitasking. If you're like me and you don't have 25 years of experience, you may need a paper and pen. I just found this conversation so insightful, so interesting. And I think a lot of you will be able to relate to the things that Adrian is talking about, regardless of your length of service, but you'll just see it from a slightly different view. One of the key takeaways I got from this conversation is It takes time to implement change and you may not even see the change that you are implementing. And it's okay if it's a little bit challenging. It's all part of the leadership journey. Another key takeaway for me was when you're trying to create change and you want more resources, the importance of evidencing the difference you can make with the resources that you have already as a springboard for saying, look, this is what we've done with this. What could we do if we had more? So evidencing the change with the resources that you already have is super important. And Adrian brings a positivity and really high level of optimism to his role and highlights some of the changes that general practice and primary care has experienced. And I think it's sometimes easy to forget the innovation that the progress has been made. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I hope you enjoy it too. The only thing we always and only ever ask is that if you do like it, it would be amazing if you could share it and enjoy. Hey, Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Brilliantly. Good to see you, Tara. I've been looking forward to this all week. <laughs> oh, thank you. So... Where I've done so many episodes, I need to like mix it up a little bit so people don't know what to expect. So my opening question for you before you do an introduction is, in the last couple of weeks, what has either made you really happy, really excited or proud? That's a good question. So in the last few weeks, I'll tell you something that made me really excited. It was we had an NHS 75 special event at the Science Museum in one of their late sessions. And I was part of a panel which was around how to stay young. 
you know, I'm usually talking about old age and people living with frailty. But in this session, I was talking about how we support ourselves to stay young and healthy and as fit as possible for as long as possible. And so for me, it was a really great perspective. And I was there with some fantastic people, Dr. Rupi and other people. And we had an hour session in an auditorium where we were just debating some really practical things to stay young. And for me, that was really exciting. And as well as that, the whole Science Museum was taken over by things that were happening around the NHS. And it was lovely to wander around the museum. I took my mum and my daughter with me and they had a great time as well. Some fantastic people like Mia Gray came along just to listen and we had a really fun evening. That was one of the things that in the last few weeks has really excited me. Love it. So could you introduce yourself a little bit about who you are and what you do today? My name's Dr. Adrian Hayter and I've been a GP for the last quarter of a century. So I'm a GP at the Renamy Medical Practice, which is a practice which crosses the Berkshire and Surrey borders. And it's fantastic for that to be my anchor. I've been there for, as I say, more than 25 years, actually. And I was there as a GP registrar. I did my training in the practice, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to stay on in the practice and have been delivering general practice to the community of Old Windsor and Engerfield Green, which is in Surrey, for the last nearly 30 years now. And that for me is very satisfying. I do clinical sessions. I work there regularly three days a week. And for me, that face-to-face contact with patients, but also serving a population of two villages is really why I wanted to do medicine. And I wanted to be a generalist looking after people and being part of that community. So the other element of the work that I do is around policy, and I'm currently the National Clinical Director for Older People and Integrated Person-Centred Care at NHS England. It's a long title. It's mainly about supporting NHS England and the medical director and the board in thinking about policy where it relates to older people. And for me, that's fantastic because it crosses both the health and social care divide. It also crosses some of the population health needs that bring communities together. And it's very much grounded in my understanding of what true primary care is. And for me, primary care is about improving health outcomes by living within the resources that are allocated to us, a definition created by the WHO in 1972 when they had their meeting around primary care. And I think for me to be able to do the two things, one is deliver care in a community-based setting, that one-to-one contact that we have with patients, to think about a population across two villages of about 12,500 patients, and to be able to then shape better outcomes for a specific population of people as they're aging is the dream pair of jobs for me. It's really interesting. So you use the term dream job. With so many GPs leaving partnership, why is it the dream job when it's so busy? Patients need so much. You get bashed in the press all of the time. What makes it the dream job? What keeps you there for a quarter of a century? So Tara, really great question, because I really recognise the pressures that are out there for GPs, for general practice. I do feel those pressures. I suppose I'm fairly optimistic. So that's part of my character. (laughs) So that gives me some of that resilience that you need. So I think that's one thing that helps me. 
The second thing that helps me is that I grew up in a family where my dad was a GP. So I've not only seen the changes since I've done general practice, I've seen also, I've been a witness to what he did in his nearly 40 years of being a GP. So for me, it's been the ability to look over a longer timescale. And what I notice in that breadth of looking over that longer timescale is that through those years, maybe the 40 years that my dad did and the 25 years that I'm doing, nearly the whole lifespan of the NHS, that we are always innovating and bringing technology and new things to be able to improve health outcomes for people. And actually, general practice is often at the cutting edge of bringing some of the innovation in. The digital health record, the electronic health record that we have in general practice is the richest health record in the world for primary care. And that has been brought in in our lifespan. And we only use to a small amount of the capacity that that has. And the future is actually huge in terms of that space, especially if we think about the opportunities for artificial intelligence and other things. So I think general practice is at the cutting edge of some of the medical advances that happen. We often have to translate that sometimes from hospital-based care into community-based care. And I think part of that is actually transforming services so that we bring more and do more in the community. And I think that's sometimes where general practice has to transform and has to change to be able to adapt over many years. And I think for me, if you think about general practice and the way it's set up, we've got the opportunity as kind of smaller businesses to be able to be fleet of foot and to do some of that quality improvement and improve the way that we do things in a much quicker way than a much larger organization. So some of that has its advantages. And I think that brings us to a place that we can sometimes lead some of the care that goes on and have a greater impact on populations in the future and and our closeness to the community and the way that we approach a population health. The population health, you know, is a term that over my lifetime of working in general practice has come into being. But actually, if you look at it, general practice had a population health approach ever since the beginning of our inception in the NHS at 75 years now. And that population health basis is, in some countries, is only getting going now. In Singapore, where I've been observing some of their work and supporting some of their work, they've recently just developed a healthier SG policy, which means that people in Singapore are going to be registered with a general practice. We've had that for 75 years. How great is that? We've got these opportunities. And I think for me, in answer to your question about what keeps me going, is that direction of travel and the opportunities that we have as primary care leaders to actually be front and centre of those changes. And finally, for me, the work that I did for over five years as a system leader, as a CCG chair, clinical chair, really recognised the opportunities for GPs to lead that clinical commissioning because of our knowledge around populations, because of our knowledge around our communities. I think we had a unique opportunity at a CCG level for general practice clinicians like myself to take up that challenge of supporting better outcomes for patients with our knowledge of our communities and with our knowledge around transformation and change. We were able to take some of that and that has been now pulled into, I think, some of the integrated care opportunities that we have at an ICS level. 
I think it's really interesting and it's helpful because one of my questions when you were speaking, you've mentioned that general practice is at the cutting edge. In many respects, yes. And I think it's important that we highlight the technology that we all benefit from now because of general practice and GPs like yourself taking that technology and running with it. But in other respects, does it feel like sometimes the same conversations go round and round and round in regards to the size and the structure? So it's small place-based and then system-wide, then back being small again, and then back being wide again. So there are some things it does change. It absolutely does. And in other areas, it just goes round and round and round. Yes, that's really fair. I think you can see this as the health service has developed. We have gone through structural changes in the NHS. We're going through a structural change at the moment around integrated care. Colleagues of mine who are at the same stage in their career as me will often bemoan the different structural changes that are happening at, at a particular time. I think I try to take a slightly different attitude to that because it's not productive. I think given what you're getting and you've got to make the best of it is my philosophy. And I think it can be very easy to get caught up in structural issues and problems where actually it's really the function rather than the form, which is the important thing. But one of the things that I think is really important, and I think this has been my experience around the small part that I played in the creation of our friendly ICB, our local integrated system, is that what we in general practice tend to do is to go headlong into doing things without really taking people along with us and being true partners and collaborative organisations. I think it is that thing about being small and fleet of foot and also about how you work with an organisation that might have, say, thousands of staff and an organisation that has tens of staff, if you like. There's a big mismatch in terms of that. A lot of that, I think, makes sense from the primary care homework around kind of, you know, what PCNs are, these organisations where it makes sense to be of a certain size. And I think that helps in terms of the collaboration that can start to occur, not only within practices, within a grouping of practices, but kind of externally also with wider other organisations. So one of the things that I learned when I became CCG chair, I had that imposter feeling (laughs) that you have when you take up a new role. And so for me, I reflected really early on in what I needed as a leader of a CCG. What were the skills and competencies that I needed? We went through an authorization process where we, as chairs and as CCGs, we had to show that we were fit to do the job. But for me, it was a period of reflection at what skills did I need to be able to do this job? And in those early stages, I really felt one of the gaps that I had as a leader was that collaborative way of working that was necessary, first of all, internally to the member practices in that clinical commissioning group to be able to bring people together. And secondly, externally to the wider region and to the wider stakeholders with local authorities and all the other partners that are important. So for me, that was one of the skills that I needed to improve. And I did the King's Fund Collaborative Leadership course at the time, a great course and something that I would promote. We've recently just had a 10-year anniversary. So I was in the first cohort of the King's Fund Collaborative Leaders course. And we've just had a 10-year anniversary. And and there's a publication which Nicola Walsh has produced around the ideas of collaborative leadership. And for me, I learned a lot in that year that I was privileged enough to go on the course. 
And some of those skills, I think, are really important. And they're softer skills. They're skills around convening, supporting, enabling people and organizations to get to the right place, which means that they're focused on the health needs of their population and improving those needs. As a leader, to be able to reflect and hone those type of skills, I think it's really important because we don't do things together. And the days of heroic leadership in the NHS are far gone now. We know that we do things in this collaborative way, and sometimes with perseverance over a number of years, which makes a difference to our populations. And the great example of that, which I can give, is that when I became a CCG chair, it was a real difficult time for our local area. The hospital, the acute hospital was going through some real difficulties and needed not only one CCG to improve and support the quality improvement in that particular hospital, but it needed a group of CCGs and NHS England and the Department of Health to be able to rescue where that hospital was going. And I can say that I played a small part in that process, which then improved quality at that hospital. But not only that, brought investment. And now there's a brand new Heatherwood Hospital Surgical Centre, which is state of the art. There's a new A&E, which came in just in time before the pandemic. And there's a new maternity unit. And the staff feel happier working in that environment than they did in the old environment. And the outcomes for our patients and our residents locally has improved because of some of those interventions that we made, because of some of the decisions that we made all of those years ago. This hasn't happened over one or two years. It's kind of happened over a period of the last 10 years. To pay a small part in that is, as a system leader, I think for me, shows that you need resilience, you need perseverance, but you need also the collaborative skills as a leader to bring people together and to do what's best for your community. Some of that needs investment and some of that needs your time as a leader to be able to make things happen. Hi everyone, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with Best Practice, where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in Birmingham on the 11th and 12th of October. If you are already registered to attend, do let us know as we would love to meet you. And if you are still to register your place, please click on the link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. This phrase is slightly out of context, but you did mention like making the best of what you've got. So how do you know when to make the best of the resources that you've got and when to challenge and push? Because you've just mentioned all of the state of the art infrastructure. When do you settle and just be positive and go, it could be worse? And when do you go, (laughs) actually, hang on a minute, we don't have the resources to deliver the best care that we know that we can if we just had dot, dot, dot. I think for me, it's not one or the other. You know, you're moving in those two areas. So it was really interesting because when I became a CCG chair, I think the CCG that I was leading, Windsor Ascot and Maidenhead CCG, was one of the 10th least funded CCGs in the country. So it's on the bottom 10% of CCG funding. And it took me probably about a year to really understand what that meant and what I could do about it as a leader. And there probably wasn't much I could do about it. I could moan about it, but it wouldn't bring a lot of change. But for me, it's about proving what you can do with the resources that you've got, first of all. So you have to prove with the resources that you've got that you can make a difference because you can always make a difference. 
we think about the efficiency gains. There's so much duplication in the system. There's so many different ways that we can actually make a difference. So I think part of it is actually proving that you can do something differently. So RCCG, because of that financial position right at the beginning, we were rated requiring improvement. It was one of these Ofsted type ratings. And having a rating of requiring improvement always feels like you're on the naughty step, doesn't it, of healthcare. But it soon came to me over that year of understanding. We had a great finance director, Nigel Foster, who really helped me understand what CCG finances were about and how the allocations were made. And even if we got a parliamentary question, things weren't going to change with the allocation formula or funding wasn't going to change. But what I knew that we could do is we could actually collaborate, work together, improve the quality of the hospital and actually start to bring up the services, not by just working on our own in RCCG, but by working collaboratively across there and make real improvements. And it was great for me to have that recognised. In the last two years of me leading the CCG, we had a rating of outstanding on both those last two years. And right at the end, when I left the CCG, I had a letter which was around the outpatient transformation, around how people were waiting for outpatient clinics. And I had a letter from the then Secretary of State to say, you've actually achieved a massive improvement in terms of outpatient waiting times. Now, that wasn't the work that I did. It was the work of a whole group of people, but also a whole collaboration of systems and investment together and working with clinicians, leading some of those processes, which made made a whole difference to the population of people not only living in Windsor, Ascot and Maidenhead, but across most of the East Berkshire system at that point in time. So for me, I think there are always things that you can do. You have to prove that you can make change happen within the resources that are allocated to you. But there's always an opportunity to think about more investment in a particular area to lead a bigger transformation change. And for me, that brings me up to some of the things I've been learning in NHS England. So one of the programs that I've been involved in right from the beginning, designing the policy all the way through to implementation has been the virtual ward program, which is now part of NHS England's operating plan. It's very much embedded in what we're doing. And for me to take that through from some of the evidence to the policy making to the implementation has been extra investment. It's been more investment in the NHS, but we had to prove a, a massive business case to be able to do that, to get the funding through from government, to be able to invest in that, in this program, which was you know nearly half a billion pounds of investment in transforming the way that we do things. So for me, you've got to do the things that you can do, and then you've yeah. got to be able to believe in yourself, use the evidence, build a business case, and specifically deliver on things that you feel are the right things, but based on that really good business case, because no one's going to give you the money if you haven't got the ideas, but also the evidence. Really, really helpful. What goes into designing a policy? So you mentioned evidence, but what else and what's the process, especially at NHS England, where you are moving across boundaries? So obviously that policy is made at all different levels. And, you know, I think over the years that I've been a GP, we often think about prescribing policy as one of the things, and that's sometimes very much locally determined, isn't it? And you have local policies around prescribing, how much prescribing. That's because by controlling that, we're able to make most efficient use of the resource that we've got according to the evidence that's based for those particular things. So evidence is really important and probably where you would want to start. And I think in terms of that evidence, it depends on what you're looking for as to what the quality of that evidence is going to be like. So for me, sometimes there may be 
things that you can do which will not necessarily involve a huge investment. So if that's the case, the evidence might have to be tailored towards that particular type of investment. You want to go and look for evidence that is of a sufficient standard. Now, for something like, I think when we're looking at policy at an NHS England level, and we're thinking about national policy, I think we're looking at really important evidence bases, which can hold up to the test of time, and which will show that what you're trying to achieve is based on a reasonable size of evidence and quality of evidence. So a randomized control trial type of evidence, some of the big studies that are done over a long period of time, because we often do evaluations and they'll show something, but there'll be gaps and flaws in that evidence. Would you say that there are gaps and flaws in all evidence? Depending on your hypothesis, you'll be able to prove something wrong or prove something right. So that's exactly right. And and I think you've got to look with a critical eye. My experience is that the people who are in charge, if you like, of the decision making, you know, if it's an NHS England board, for example, who are in charge of that, they'll want to have real trust in that evidence. And as you quite rightly say, there'll be different types of interpretation around evidence. So for me, it's about taking people on that journey through the evidence and actually walking them through that and looking at it not only with rose-tinted glasses, but looking at it with all the things. So as you quite rightly say, it's never that black and white. But it's that journey sometimes of taking people through that to make that informed risk at an executive team level, which is really important. The other thing is that clinicians are enthusiasts and we champion things. We get very enthusiastic about technology or some other thing. And I think sometimes what helps is the counterbalance to that. People who are policymakers and it's their role to be the managers and the directors who live in that policy world. And so for me, it's working very closely with them as managers who have an understanding of how policy is made, which is really important because I think as clinicians, we can often be the champions, but the policy managers and leads will often say, well, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that? Or why don't you go and look at this? And I think listening and working with those directors and those managers They're not heard usually. It's usually the champion who has the loud voice, but actually it's the people behind the scenes who make a big difference to that policymaking. And then the third group, I think, which are really important are the people we're serving, the patients and the public and what you're trying to do. I think there's a number of reasons why they're important in policy, but the main reason is because we are going to be serving them with whatever this new change is. And Unless we're taking people along that journey with us, we're going to be blinded again in a particular kind of way. And so for me, in that journey, constantly checking back, working with groups of people to understand what the experience might be, what are the unintended consequences of a new policy decision, how we might think about things in a slightly different lens from a perspective of an individual receiving a service, I think is exactly what we need to do right from the beginning of policymaking rather than use it as an add-on at the end. And for me, that completes the triumvirate, if you like, of the clinical champion, the manager and the patient really supporting that particular policymaking. Those would be the, from my perspective, and I'm I'm not necessarily the world authority on policymaking, but I'm a clinical champion and I've been involved in policy at a local level as well as a national level. That's how I see it. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. 
Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. What does excellent integrated care look like to you? In a way, for me... Great integrated care looks like it's there in the background, but no one recognises it. It's just joined up seamless care that happens for people without people even noticing it. Because I look at some of my patients who I've known for the last 25, 30 years, people aren't bothered about how services integrate necessarily. What they just want is good, seamless care, which goes on and we are all working towards the same care, which is a good outcome for them as an individual. And so how those services are joined up, whether it be health or social care joining up, they just want it to be delivered in a seamless way. And I'll give you the example of end-of-life care, because I think end-of-life care is actually a lot of the time where we get some of these services really right for people, because especially if people want to die in the community. And one of the things that struck me this was a number of years ago now, was a patient came to live in our practice area to live with her daughter at the end of her life. And she came from a different local authority into our patch. So obviously this was a new experience for the daughter, but it was also a new experience for her as a patient and the support that she would need. And for me, what happened around that patient, we tried to really be centered on that patient's needs and her support. And we had great teams, both carer teams and health teams, who just slotted in to support her care. And when the lady died and the daughter reflected on her care, she just described the care as being really excellent. And for me, it wasn't the care that the surgery had given her. It was the care that the district nursing team, they were compassionate and personalized her care. It was the care that the therapist came in terms of kind of, you know, the equipment that she needed. It was the care that the carers actually who were from the Royal Borough of Windsor Maidenhead came and just how attentive they were to that person, not only that person's needs, but the carer's needs as well. And how we all worked seamlessly as a team in the background to be able to deliver that great care. And also, as well as that, had people from the community also supporting both the carer and the person who was being cared for. And it all came together without people actually making a big fuss about it. It was just there delivering the care. People weren't saying, it's not my job to do this and it's my job to do that. And people were collaborating and supporting that family through a really difficult period of their lives. So for me, I always have that in my mind around integration and that agenda going forward. The other end of life example was when a child 
So you don't often look after a child in the community who has end-of-life needs. But for me, that did happen. And when it happened, a similar kind of experience but really the community was the place that played the biggest part of that. I think, you know, I, you know, I played a part and other people played a part, but it was actually the whole community from the school to the local church to neighbors filled in all the gaps that we had to support that child dying at home. End of life care for me epitomizes some of how you can actually strive for excellence, but we need to do that consistently for everyone to be able to really make that difference. And for me, I think that's the goal that we're striving for in terms of integrated care. I would say for me, it's really helpful hearing that. I think excellent integrated care, my expectations are quite low and I think this would be excellent. (laughs) And that is just proactive communication. It makes me want to cry. I don't know why, but I am a food friend, which means every week I pack up an extra portion of my dinner and I take it round to my food friend. And she's 80. And she said to me, and I wrote this in my phone. She said, I now spend my life calling people and chasing people up and nothing gets done. It broke my heart. And the context is she'd had an operation, but she was still experiencing pain. And she said, Tara, can you read this letter for me from the consultant? I had to Google half of it. It was like gobbledygook. And I was like, I can't read this. And I'm young. Of course, Mm. Joan can't read it. She's 80. She can't read it. And we were talking about three pharmacies have closed down where we have lived. So I said, what are you going to do? And she said, oh, I phoned up the pharmacy and the pharmacy's not accepting, you know, like paper prescriptions anymore. So I was like, okay, we need to get you on the NHS app. And she said, but I can't see. So then it was just this. Yes, all these little things, little, little, little things. And I did think, oh, only she had a care coordinator because they needed somebody to help her. And I'm there. I'm her food friend. I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. But it's like, actually, she doesn't need a phone. She needs like a really big tablet. So I did think, I don't know if that's integrated care or just care or care in the community, but I did think if this person didn't have me coming in, she would just be sitting there in pain or, you know, like going to the doctor, going to the consultant, going to the doctor and nobody really taking care of her and making sure she understands what happens next and how she's going to get a prescription. It's just good care, isn't it, Tara? And it's really interesting that you bring that up, actually, well, actually, just before I came on to do this, I was emailing a colleague and you'll know who it is if he's listening to this. <laughs> but we were having this discussion about care coordination. And for me, care coordination and personalised care and support planning are one of the benchmarks that we need to be able to deliver for older people, especially not only older people, but lots of other population groups as well. But for me, in my role in NHS England, I think it's really important that it's a process. It's not just a one-off event. It's a process of supporting somebody. It's individualised, you know, taking her needs as a person with limited sight or who can't see, as well as having somebody who can do care coordination for her. Now, the person who I was having this debate with was saying, well, what's the evidence for that, that it really works? And can you show me where the evidence is? So it goes back to that policymaking discussion that we had just about kind of, you know, what grade of evidence do you need to? But for me, it's obvious that this needs to be in the model of care going forward. 
having just done a little bit of a tranche of evidence review for it, there were quite a lot of studies around care coordination, but I think it means different things to different people. And also, it doesn't necessarily mean a health professional. And you gave a great example of a non-health professional role for care coordination, if you like. It needs different things for, and it could be a relative who's doing some of that care coordination as well. But if it's missing, there's a gap that we need to fill, which is an important gap to fill for the longer term needs. And it all fits into some of that personalized care and support planning process that is important for delivery of her care now and in the future so that she's not in pain, so that she's getting the right drugs and treatment and medication, and so that people are advocating for her in the state of vulnerability that she might be because of all of those things that are happening to her as she ages. So I 100% understand the need for evidence, but there's also something about do you need evidence to care for people that may not be able to care for themselves? And do you think there are other countries that really love and take care of their elderly population? And I think we're a little bit different. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, you can look at that internationally. I think we might be a bit different. We are different to different other areas. You know, I think the family units might be quite different. My family are from the Far East and So as I said earlier, I look to Singapore, work with some of those. And it is a different culture. It's a different expectation, although the challenges are the same in terms of ageing and all the issues that are happening and the context and the culture might be slightly different. I think one of the biggest things in our culture here in the UK is isolation and social isolation and loneliness is a big driver of ill health as well. There's evidence around people living longer if they have regular social interactions like you're doing with the person that you're supplying her food meal. If you have a regular interaction with people every day, that helps support you living longer. And I think in this country where people are busy, the lifestyle is as it is in the UK. There are a lot of people living without any contact with anybody every day. And the contact that they may have intermittently with a health professional or someone from social care might be very few and far between. And I think that does increase people's risks of conditions like dementia and other illnesses as well, as well as not being able to spot a deterioration at an earlier stage rather than later stage. I could talk to you for ages. This is fascinating. (laughs) I just wanted to pick up. You mentioned that in one of your roles, it took you about a year to kind of understand like the lay of the land. And I just wanted to highlight that because I'm immersed in the world of primary care networks. And there is, we're slowly kind of chugging along and some of us are still getting going. And I suppose I just wanted to highlight for those of you that are in a position where you feel like we're not making progress, that's quite common. You are understanding the politics, the dynamics, the hierarchy, your strengths, maybe your blind spots. And it it takes time to make change. And sometimes you won't even understand or see the change that you have made until like years, years later you've moved on and somebody says, oh, we've done that. And you think, oh, I, I started that. Oh yeah. I can point to that feeling quite a lot. Over the years, I have in various roles, I've seen people who get frustrated by the lack of progress. And I think as many people, uh, some people who I've supported in terms of their own leadership journeys through a coaching or a mentorship way, we have to go through this kind of topic quite a lot in terms of their own personal resilience. 
because we're used to having the individual contacts that we have with patients. We have gratification from improvements through that. But I think you have to take a step back from that. Definitely, if you're in a leadership position, you have to really think in a different way. And for me, it's really interesting to be able to think in that different way because it's partly listening, which is really important because you have to listen to the views of other people. And that takes time sometimes. And then when things don't progress, you have to be adept enough to change your mindset and do things in a different way. So that can be really frustrating, but it's about building. And I think it's about, for me, this progress that you make together. And I think the one good thing in general practice is that we have the opportunity, if we wish, to stay in a particular area and work over a period of time to improve those outcomes. What I'd say to a lot of younger GPs coming in, where sometimes that doesn't happen as much, there are some opportunities to stay in an area, to work with a population and to take that longer term approach, which I think is really important and to support people in doing that. Last night, actually, I was with a group of GPs in our PCN, in, in the Windsor PCN, and we just had a two-hour session. This was last evening. And we were looking at the opportunities through our Connected Care program. It's the program which brings all the data. So we were having a two-hour to sit there and reflect and look at our population and our data and think about what opportunities there might be for the future. I think for me, that was two hours investing in. And these were GPs who were recent partners in the practices of our PCN. So three new partners in the PCN. And it was absolutely right for them to have this understanding because as the years go on, what we're hoping as a PCN is that they are really understanding and the enthusiasm, the energy in that room with our elective care team was amazing. It's that ability for them to use the tools that we've got available to our PCN to be able to think about their populations as a group of our Windsor PCN and to think about the longer term future. Some of that stuff we were admitting, you know, do you want to do some things that will make a difference in the short term? But actually, it's also building on that for the longer term. I'm hoping that as we develop these neighborhoods and you've got leaders who are prepared to stay in a particular area and prepared to look at the opportunities of leadership over a longer period of time, we can have GPs doing some of that leadership in their own localities. And I think that will bring back to me something I think that we've lost a little bit over the, over the years that I've been a GP. I think we've lost some of that. A lot of GPs now are maybe portfolio, looking at things, moving around a lot. And I can understand why that is. There's really good reasons for that. The pressures are, are immense at the moment. My optimism holds out that they in the future will be around when I'm an older person and I'll be able to be on the end of them being the leaders in our health system to be able to improve the care that older people get in, say, 10 years' time. i just add to that, as a non-GP, as a non-clinician, we need clinicians and non-clinicians to be in this for the long haul. It is shared and we will bring something different. Absolutely. It goes back to the point about, you know, you need to be working with your populations. The team actually who were with me last night, one of those people who works in our system, you know, I've been on this journey with him for the last 15 years around data and intelligence, and he's made changes happen that we are benefiting from now. 
And I think that's a challenge as well. We've got cuts, if you like, in terms of how managers are in the health service. You know, we've got the recent new NHS England, which is changing a lot of people. So some of these structural changes aren't helping some of that continuity. We often talk about the continuity with patients, don't we, and and how important that is. But sometimes this continuity of leadership is what you're talking about, I think, is very important because how many projects do we start up which have already been around and failed previously? So I think that continuity of leadership is really important as well. Adrian, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Good to speak. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and i will see you in the next episode.